Well, this past week, uh, there were a lot of people gathered at the Vancouver Convention Centre, and it was for a pretty uh, interesting event. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. We've all heard of that. So this event was focused on exactly that and how to look at the declaration and how to apply it when moving forward, particularly when we're talking about resource projects in the province of British Columbia. Jennifer Turner joins me on the line now. The uh, event director, the event called Finding the Path, also special projects director for Resource Works. Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I was looking through the lineup and the agenda and the speakers and what was happening, and a lot was packed into this event. What would you say the focus was of the program Finding the Path? Absolutely. Uh, Well, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is really a very broad and aspirational document. Uh, it, is, it affects, it will affect every aspect of industry in Canada, and in many ways, it'll it'll affect our lives and as we you know grow forward as a country. So this was intended to be a broad and open platform. Uh, it was very critical that it would be led by Indigenous voices, and we wanted to bring together uh, diverse perspectives and as many voices as possible to get people's thoughts and opinions about what our way forward should look like uh, with Canada and our adoption and BC's adoption of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And and how do you think it will actually change resource-based projects moving forward? Um, Well, for one thing, that really remains to be seen. One of the reasons that we put this event together was to tackle that question along with other hard questions. Uh, The declaration itself is written actually as an aspirational document. So anybody can go online and read it. And unlike say a lot of our documentation at home, like, um, I don't know, your, your banks, you know, the small print for your bank statement, it's actually a really quick read to read the declaration. It's not a legal document in and of itself. It's not prescriptive. So it describes a destination that we all need to work on and arrive at in Canada. Uh, In terms of adopting the bill, it's really up to us, and I mean each and every one of us, including all your listeners this morning, to determine what that looks like, to make sure it's not empty words, and to determine, you know, how we get there. In many ways, that's an open question, um, and those are, you know, that's some of the things that we talked about at the event. And 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 when you say an aspirational document, I think that's where some people would look at that and say, okay, well, how do you take an, a, a, an aspirational declaration and then actually apply it? Because when we look at projects, and one that I think would be top of mind for many people right now would be the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline and the protest that has been ongoing at that site. Uh, there's not agreement on what should be happening as far as moving ahead with that project. How do you take something that's an aspirational declaration and actually apply it to a real situation like that? Mm-hmm. One of the things, even in our legal panel, that we wanted to be really careful about in this event is we wanted to kind of, you know, at, we wanted to talk about some of these difficult discussions. But it is really critical to not, in fact, make the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples about uh, one specific project or one specific piece of infrastructure. Uh, I come from oil and gas. I've got a long, you know, I've got over a decade of experience, including working on drilling rigs. 
so I see that happening really in public discourse. But there are so many deeper um, issues that are really connected even to any any given economic argument. So in terms of talking about economic prosperity, uh, there's no way to really have any conversation about infrastructure or any economic argument that doesn't recognize some of the deeper, deeper issues uh, that, you know, really get raised underneath the deck, like really get raised as part of the declaration. So many communities are really in pain, some communities more than others, and there's no path to prosperity uh, that really fails to address that. So it's really important, I think, to, you know, while that is part of the conversation, to not forget that and to not make uh, this a conversation about a single project or piece of infrastructure, uh, because there are other issues in the sense that um, ever since the inquiry, for example, the reports and rates of missing and murdered Indigenous women actually have continued unabated. Um, Residential schools, I only learned in the process of, of being an organizer for this event, but residential schools actually continued in Canada until 1996. Uh, indigenous kids are overrepresented in our foster care system that's still failing them in many ways. And all of these, I think, might seem like, um, like I guess maybe a lot of your listeners might think I'm changing the subject. Uh, but the truth is, when we have any conversation that's based on the economy, or that's based on, you know, project development or development of a single piece of infrastructure, I believe that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People does require us to step back and take a broader perspective to look at these wider issues and to, you know, re-examine, you know, everything in that broader context to find, you know, a new way forward. Right. Do we need the United Nations guiding us, though? And you mentioned a couple of the inquiry. We've had Truth and Reconciliation inquiries in Canada, in B.C. I mean, the United Nations, one of their committees just came out and basically said no, none of these projects should go forward. Do we really need the United Nations telling us how to do this? Can we not figure it out on our own? That really surprised me uh, when the United Nations did that. Um, in terms of my understanding of the declaration itself, uh, it was written, it wasn't written um, for any specific country. So when you go online and you read it, which is actually, I would encourage everybody to do that. It's actually a very short read. Um, When you go ahead, it's not written in a way that's specific for Canada. So for British Columbia, for example, in taking this as Bill 41 and deciding to go forward with it, uh, it's really up to BC to decide what that's going what that's going to look like for us, um, and you know certainly the same would also apply to Canada. That's a really important conversation. That was the spirit of this event, because um, you know words are empty words. But it's really up to Canada, and I mean all of Canada, uh, including all your listeners today, to really get involved and learn about these issues and understand you know, work on a way forward because, you know, I think it's easy to say that our predecessors have failed in terms of creating, you know, a healthy and constructive relationship with Indigenous peoples in the past. This is an opportunity to do something much bigger. 
it's an opportunity really to finally get it right. Um, but it's, it's, you know, that really requires all of us, you know, even I think in particular people who might be driving along and listening to this and thinking, Oh, that's a separate conversation that doesn't really apply to me, which is kind of how I used to feel personally. Um, but you know, absolutely reconciliation and certainly a path to a stronger and more, more cohesive country, which is something we have to undertake. That really does require us. And it requires, you know, us as people like myself and many of your listeners this morning as non-Indigenous allies. Right. So do you think that people walked away from this? Because this was a a day, it was an event with many different members of different First Nations, uh, many resource uh, uh, companies and resource sectors represented at this conference. Do you think people walked away with a better understanding or with a, a plan moving forward? Yes, absolutely. I think people walked away um, where we did, you know, we had over 40 speakers and this was not an event uh, for stuffy PowerPoint presentations. It was, you know, put as an, it was put forward as a a highly visible independent platform for people to take um, a, a pretty small amount of time on stage, to be honest, where we had so many speakers and really lay out, um, you know, in a very candid way, what they feel is most important. Um, and the day was really inspiring, I think, in that sense for many people. Many people from the business community, I think, came in a sense uh, with, the, you know, in a sense of confusion. What does this mean for me? What can getting this right look like? Um, And it's true that underneath this declaration, there'll be no single business or industry that's exempt from adopting these principles in in B.C. And uh, it really looks like Canada is going to go in that same direction. So um, a lot of Canada's industries and companies are already working and they've already been working ahead uh, in some cases to align themselves with these principles. So part of this event was highlighting what that looks like. And we really did have a lot of voices. So I really, we've been getting overwhelmingly good feedback. People walked away inspired and, um, you know, walked away with ideas as to what they can use and implement in their own businesses going forward. All right. uh, We will leave it there. Jennifer Turner, thank you so much. Thanks for being with us today. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. We are going to talk a little bit about federal politics, focusing on the federal conservative party and the leadership race. Some key dates coming up next month will be the deadline for would-be candidates to pay, I believe it's a $25,000 installment of the registration fee. And this all is part of the lead up to the convention, which is being held on June 27th. Well, let's bring in Elise Mills, senior consultant and political commentator for her take on how things look so far. Elise, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. So where are we as far as uh, declared candidates? Not a huge surprise that Peter McKay has uh, put his hat in the ring. Uh, Where are we, though, as far as uh, candidates and uh, people who want to be the next leader? Well, as you just mentioned, Peter McKay is in. Um, I think Pierre Polyev uh, is going to be in. Um, And we have a relatively unknown person, a failed conservative candidate, uh, from Ontario by the name of Bobby Singh. Um, and so he's put his name into the hat. We also have uh, Vince Gutso, uh, full disclosure, a former client of mine, um, who is the head of Cinema Gutso and Gutso Incorporated in Quebec. 
Um, and he's appeared many, many times on BNN. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a corporate leader in Canada. And he's definitely got a flair about him. It'll be interesting to see Vince up on stage with the professional politicians. I'll tell you that. Uh, and he's definitely got the money, much like Peter McKay and Pierre Polyev do. And I'm, I, I, this is, and I have to add, Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole's in. Um, he, you know, both him and Pierre Polyev have not formally declared. My concern around Aaron O'Toole is whether or not he can actually afford what is a very expensive leadership race this time around. Right, because as I was just reading up on that as well, so the $25,000 installment has to be made by next month, and then and that's just the installment. So it is an expensive. Yeah. You have to be committed to doing this if you're doing it. Yeah, it's 200. So in total cost, it's $300,000. But your initial, so 25,000 is part of a 200,000 non-refundable payment and you will get 100000 back. Uh, this is very different from 2016. Essentially, what you're looking at is raising about $30,000 a week starting last week. Uh, so there's not many candidates in the conservative world that have not only a wide level of support across the country, but a deep level of support. Uh, because you're essentially asking your supporters to max out their personal uh, exemption for political donations. And then you would also have to have a campaign uh, bank behind you uh, that is that is fulsome so that you could do things like travel across the country uh, put out a what I would say a very professional campaign versus what we saw in 2016 which was 13 or 14 candidates and it was all about quantity versus quality I think at that particular time with the exception of, of four or five very strong candidates then but everybody just sort of got lost and it was a bit of a free-for-all because the rules weren't uh, Uh, as tight as they are right now. And uh, I hate to put things down the line of men and women, but there has been a lot of talk of whether the next leader could in fact Mm -hmm. be a woman. There's only one declared at this point, one candidate who's female. Yes, and I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is a conversation I've had with Conservatives since Friday. Um, There has been a lot of phone calls, Jill, as I'm sure you can imagine. And I, you know, I feel that at my age now, in my mid-40s, a Gen Xer in the party, I think a question that a lot of women like myself who have been pundits and strategists and been part of the the conservative movement for a long time now, I think what we're asking is, you know, it's not just about a gender lens, um, but I think it's very difficult for the females in the Conservative Party to see their story. If you're constantly dealing with male leaderships or, or a lack of diversity, how is it that we're supposed to diversify our base, right? I, if it wasn't going to be Rana, why did nobody ask Candace Bergen? She's a spitfire. Uh, I think she's actually far stronger than some of the candidates that have put their name forward uh, already. Her her work as a in the uh, in the process of Parliament uh, for the last year, and I think specifically uh, about the SNC scandal, her and Lisa Raitt were firecrackers, and their their performance was exceptional. I, the media agrees with that. So why is nobody rallying around to Candace Bergen? Where's Michelle Rempel? Um, are they getting the support that a male candidate who I think has lesser qualifications is getting? Uh, do they have access to that type of finance uh, that they need to be able to run? Uh, I don't want to turn this into a feminist rant, but I would say that, you know, it's interesting. We have minority men and we have men from all walks of life, but we don't have, I think, any, any what I would be expecting to see. We don't have those women coming from the front bench. 
The other question is the party has to ask how they lost Lisa Raitt in the last uh, election. And I think that speaks volumes to uh, where the Conservative Party is with their female membership as well. So, you know, I think it's high time that we bring in and we support female uh, candidates from all walks of life because that applies to a diversification around policy debate. We need to answer the environment question. I realize that we don't want to put a solution out there that means that Canadians are going to pay more to solve the to solve what's coming up with the environmental crises but we need to come up with something we were a party of innovators and doctors and lawyers and we now seem to be a party that's sort of stuck in 2011 we need to come up with some answers around social the social economy as well and the trajectory that canadian women will have in this country socially fiscally and economically so I'd, I'd, right now, I'm not particularly passionate about this leadership campaign, Jill, and I don't think I'm the only one. I'm, I'm hoping to see uh, some bigger names and, and a more diversification of the candidates in the next uh, five to ten days. And you mentioned uh, Ronna Ambrose. Do you think there's any chance that she <sighs> would join the race? I just, you know, I know the last very sort of detailed conversation I had with her was a while ago now and you know over a year and it was at a press gallery dinner in Ottawa and we had the conversation she was leaving she had left as interim leader at the time she was about to get married she has a new husband and I think uh, you know I, I don't think it's about what I think people are putting up on the uh, up on the table that she's making a choice between leader of the party and say an ambassadorship to the United States I don't think that's the that's the uh, equation that's going on in Ronna's brain. I think she's looking at what the party has put forward for candidates, and I think it's telling me, and probably it's probably uh, you know something that she's thought about. Is this selection of candidates telling us that the party is ready to move forward? Because if she's going to get off her chair and come in and run, I know the projects that Rana is interested in. I know the policies Rana has advocated for and will continue to advocate for. Is the party ready to be taken to that next level? I, it's, it's 100% to me that she could win and be Trudeau. But the question is, is the party willing to go that route to do so? So I think that's another question. Uh, are any of these candidates that have put their names out there so far, are they capable of beating Justin Trudeau and uniting the country? Um, and right now, I think the only name that we can look at to, to having that would be Ron Ambrose. But I think that she's got to be able to not she's she she can easily win, I think, a federal election. But can she win the party over? And is it going to be a smooth transition? Because if you have a leader like Rana that's very inspirational and puts out aspirational policy, you're building out for a decade. So this will be 2020 to 2030. And uh, much like the years of Stephen Harper, it was a decade plus of Stephen Harper, and he made his mark. She's going to be looking to make her mark. And is the party in that position? They should be in this position by, by now, but I'm not so sure I see that with the membership. All right. And just before I let you go, do you think or are you able to have an idea how many candidates do you think we're going to be talking about? Are more people going to come out and join this? I, I think we're going to be looking at maybe seven candidates and it, it's not going to be the sort of circus that we saw in 2016 where we had those 14 candidates. And by the way, Jill, being a pundit during that time was insane. <laughs> um, it reminded me of the Democratic race, you know, where you've got everybody in the kitchen sink up there. Um, I, I think 
I think it's not so much about the quality or sorry, the quantity of how many are out there. It's going to be whether any of these candidates, uh, the ones that we know about and the ones that I'm hoping are going to join, whether they're going to be able to have a, a, a rigorous uh, policy debate because the key to this isn't just about anointing or coronating a leader. It's going to be about putting the blueprint together for the next decade for the conservative movement because the party is the outcome of the movement. We work very differently than the Liberals. We're probably organizationally closer to the NDP in the sense that we're, you know, we're tribal, we're a movement, and the party is where we do the business, right? So it'll be interesting to see. And also, how what are the rules of engagement? on the the actual convention day is it going to be more of a floor convention that definitely changes um uh how how i think what type of candidate's going to be interested i think a floor convention is always far better than uh and i and i know that we're doing the preferred ballot but what i'm saying is are they going to try and simulate that floor convention like they tried to do in 2016 and almost got there if we could sort somehow simulate that to a better uh, a better example than we did in 2016 i think that probably uh would attract more candidates as well all right. Uh, interesting one to watch for sure. Elise, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great Sunday. Well, some concerns about the health of species of fish in the Coquitlam River had led to a group in Coquitlam to write a letter to the government asking for action to be taken. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is the president of the North Fraser Salmon Assistance Program, Tony Matalija. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, what are your concerns? What's happening with the Coquitlam River? Coquitlam River have a lot of issue. Uh, if you are familiar uh, with the area and the watershed, they are uh, industry, uh, gravel extraction. But uh, since uh, you know they start cooperating with the with the different government and environment groups, they are better now than the. Uh, 10, 15 years ago. But the biggest issue we have now with the Falaka Creek, which is the uh, upper part uh, of the Coquitlam watershed, uh, that uh, ravine of the creek is nothing but clay. And I believe that uh, Lafarge industry in earliest year developed a creek, a small channel to the Falaka, and now more flow coming in is just a contributing lots of siltation. I've been a river since 1980. I start with the fisherman program in the 96 when the industry collapsed. Uh, I retrain many, many fishermen in many different groups. I do majority restoration on the Coquitlam River. And coho is a, is a main a main species that we want to protect. So we do side channels. Uh, I did a channel in Upper Coquitlam Park. And with the siltation, we are just wasting our time and money because it's just uh, filling up sooner. You know, we, we build this. No time is back, you know, backfill. A uh, letter is written to so many different organizations, government uh, all kind of establishment, and they promised they will fix it, they will fix it, but nothing is done so far. Hmm. And you've had a meeting, haven't you, or your group has had a meeting with representatives from Hydro, from Metro Vancouver and such. Did anything come from that? I don't attend 
the the higher up meeting, but uh, we have a we call a Coquitlam River Roundtable. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And there's uh, so many groups uh, attending those meetings. Another meeting is coming up on the 22nd, uh, 9:30 a.m. in Coquitlam uh, First Nation uh, Band, you know, Band Office. Uh, we are just keep pressing and pressing and pressing. Uh, how far we'll go and how much we will accomplish uh, is hard to say. Hmm. Did you uh, do, do you see signs then of the obviously you can see the muddy water and the silt, but are you seeing signs that the the salmon are being negatively impacted? I mean, are there dead fish or what else are you seeing there? Uh, put this way, I spend you know it's a two stage channel uh, with the upper Coquitlam. You know, it's about 150 200 meter long. Uh, it's a wintering pond uh, specifically for coho and. Uh, in a three, four day uh, heavy rain, we lose to something like a 50 to 100 meter of the channel. It's just a 150, 200 load of muck coming in. Hmm. It's a just a losing battle. So we, we created a couple of years ago settlement pond, you know, ahead of that pond uh, to try to protect the lower end. And uh, three days the pond was full, settlement pond. Uh, it's, uh, it's uh, hard to explain to you. Uh, you will have a better vision if you are if you are there and uh, right on the site and you can see, you know, devastation. Right. What do you think needs to be done then to fix this problem? Well, BC Hydro have a right of way. So many people say that uh, most, uh, you know, damage is done because, uh, you know, vegetation is cut down, trees cut down. So, you know, it's just a free fall, you know, water just, uh, you know, thundering down the, down the you know, creek. Uh, so they have to they have to divert the water back from the small channel. I presume that uh, Lafarge is doing that. But, you know, when, when you are struggling, uh, it's never soon enough to be done. You know, we want it done like a yesterday, not tomorrow. You know that's how that's how things go. Right. Oh, you mentioned there's a, another meeting coming up on the 22nd. What do you do in the meantime, then, as far as raising awareness about this or getting some action on it? Well, we have a. If you see a Tri City paper uh, last Thursday, I believe, was an article again. My mug is on <laughs> on the paper. My wife said, "You know what you're doing? You know your your picture is coming and uh, your face is coming in the newspaper almost daily." Uh, you know, we we trying to, you know, to keep uh, everybody aware. You know, residents in Tri City, you know, and uh, different organization and DFO and Hydro and everybody's involved. Everybody know what is going on. All politicians they know. Uh, the letter was sent to to Ron McKinnon, you know, MP from Whitlam and uh, the lady from Port, I believe Port Moody and. Uh, MLA for Coquitlam and Selena Robinson and First Nation and let's go on and on and on. You know, that much we can do. You know, we don't have the finances to to just keep going and fixing, going and fixing. And it's just a losing battle. All right. Well, we will check in with you, I'm sure, uh, after uh, the coming meeting and uh, see what's happening with that and if anything changes. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Tony, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, though, and uh, talking about this, raising the awareness about this. Appreciate your time today. Yeah, I, I believe down the road that we will succeed. You know, BC Hydro will come forward and uh, in all different organizations, Fisher and Ocean and Pacific Southern Foundation. 
different groups. Uh, uh, we'll see. But uh, I believe down the road, you know, that uh, maybe by summertime, we probably fix it majority of the problem. All right. Uh, well, we hope so. Definitely. Tony, thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's take a look at some BC politics and joining me to do that is Mike Smith, columnist with the province, also host here on CKNW. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Jill. I want to talk about your column from yesterday because you uh, sat down, you had a pretty lengthy conversation with Andrew Weaver and got some answers to questions a lot of people had. Yeah, when Andrew Weaver last week stepped aside as from the Green Party caucus to sit as an independent MLA. He put out a brief statement saying he was facing a a personal health issue in his family, and that was the reason for it. There are a lot of questions about it that really make a lot of sense. Why, Why can't you just stay in the Green caucus with a reduced workload? Is there something else going on here? Have you had a falling out with your colleagues? Are you trying to force an early election? Like, What's going on? There are even some rumors maybe he's being courted by the NDP to switch over and sit in John Horgan's cabinet. So I reached out to him, asked him for an interview. He hadn't been doing many interviews at all. In fact, he hadn't done any with, with media. But I've got a good relationship with him for many years, so he agreed to the interview. And it, it's, in the, it's in the print edition of the province newspaper today, and it's online at theprovince.com. And what struck me in the interview was just how emotionally upset he is about this situation with his family. And he asked me not to go into detail about the situation that he's facing, which I agreed to do, to not do. And But I can tell you that it's, it's basically there's someone in his family very ill, and he is not in good shape. Like when I was talking to him, he was uh, he was crying at times. He was choking back tears. He was upset. And then he would become more lucid and talk more about the issues in the Green Party that I was interested in. But then he'd go back to this health issue in his family and get really upset. He, he was losing it a bit in the interview. So I, I finished the interview with the feeling that, you know what, that's what this is about. This guy is facing a, a personal health crisis in his family and he's dealing with it pretty much full-time, and that's the primary reason he stepped away. But he, he did get into some interesting kind of thoughts on the current situation with the Green Party leadership as well with me. Yeah, and I mean, that's horrible, <laughs> and certainly thoughts are with him as he yeah. deals with this. But yeah. can, So can he continue doing his job, though, if he's so focused on this other issue? Well, he said yes, because he feels that he can still do his basic work as an MLA. Uh, he intends to be at the legislature when he can. He said that this situation that he's facing will keep him in Vancouver for one week out of every three weeks, so sort of two weeks in Victoria, then one week in Vancouver. And clearly when he's in Vancouver, he and he said this that could go on for like six months. Um, so clearly when he's in Vancouver, he will not be able to attend the legislature. So I, I suspect there are going to be days when the legislature is in session. He's not going to be there to vote. Uh, with the House being in very close mar- voting margins in there. That's an intriguing situation. Although he did say that he's still committed to the agreement to keep the NDP in power and that when the budget is presented in February that he said he will be there to vote in favor of the government's budget, even if it means flying back and forth the same day from Vancouver. So he, he did say he can fulfill his duties in, as an independent MLA, but he said he could not continue 
with the additional workload of being in that Green Party caucus. And he went into some detail about all the work in the Green Party caucus that entails, like a lot of meetings with the NDP as part of their power-sharing agreement. Um, he said he gets hundreds of emails a day from constituents who still think he's the leader of the Green Party. And he said he just had to step aside from that extra workload. And do you, and do you buy that, that it's that different being part of a three-member caucus or an independent? After speaking to him, I, I was a bit skeptical at first, which is the reason I reached out to him for the interview. But after speaking to him, um, I came away with a feeling like this is a guy who's uh, dealing with a, a health emergency in his family. And that's the reason he said, look, I wanted to lighten my workload by stepping away from this caucus. Now, some people might say, well, if, if it's that all-consuming, maybe you should resign as an MLA. You know, I've heard that said, but he said that he feels that he continued, he can continue to be uh, represent his riding effectively as an independent MLA, do the work of, of an MLA that he's elected to do, but he just didn't want to do the Green Party stuff anymore. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the, you mentioned uh, he had <clears throat> a bit of insight, too, on who might be the new leader, the next leader of the Greens when they elect a new leader in June. Right. Uh, what did he tell you about that? Well, he said that Sonia Firstenau, who is uh, a Green Party MLA right now, he said that in his, she is going to run for the leadership, which doesn't really surprise anybody. He called it the worst kept secret out there. She just hasn't announced it. Um, he had earlier said that he believes the Green Party should elect a new leader from Metro Vancouver in order to expand the party's voter appeal. Sonia Firstenau is like the other two Green MLAs are from a Victoria area riding. This is sort of a Victoria bubble here where the Green Party has achieved its only electoral success. In Weaver's opinion, they should bring in a leader from outside of that sort of Victoria area to expand the party's appeal. And that, I thought, was a, kind of clearly a shot at Firstenau, who is clearly going to run for this job and will probably be a front-runner because she's already an elected MLA. And so I tried to kind of talk to him a bit more about that, but he didn't want to go there anymore. He said that he's going to stay out of it. He's not going to endorse anybody. But another name to watch for for the Green Party leadership is a former school board trustee in uh, New West named uh, Yonina Campbell, who is currently the deputy leader of the party appointed by Weaver from Metro Vancouver, does not have a narrow sort of environmental activist background as a politician. And I, I believe that he wants her to win. The leadership. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see how that unfolds yeah. moving forward. Also wanted to touch on the court ruling that we got this past week as well. The beatdown, the wrapping of the, the hand of the BC NDP government yeah. when it comes to Trans Mountain. Not a huge surprise, but no. I know a lot of taxpayers saying, well, why did you waste so much taxpayer money to go forward and do this thing? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a column last year saying precisely what's going to happen here. This is going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada and it will be pretty much immediately dismissed because you didn't, and I wasn't going far out in a limb there. Other people were predicting that as well. You did not have to have a law degree to realize that this thing is a dead duck and it was not, it was not going anywhere. This was a, a court reference in which the BC government asked the courts, can we tell Alberta what to put in that, in that pipeline? because we don't want this dirty bitumen coming from the Alberta oil sands and potentially spilling into our marine environment. So can we tell Alberta not to put that stuff in the pipe? And that's what this case was all about. And that's ridiculous. You can't, one province can't do that. And it's very clear legal precedent that when a pipeline 
crosses a provincial boundary, it then becomes known legally as what's known as an interprovincial undertaking. In other words, it is federal jurisdiction. It's a federally licensed and regulated pipeline. So BC can't tell Alberta what to put in that pipe. And the BC Court of Appeal smacked the government down on that, the highest court in BC in a 5 nothing ruling. And it should have ended there. They shouldn't have even have brought the, the case, in my opinion, Jill. But, and then they said, well, we're going we're gonna to appeal it all to the Supreme Court of Canada. Well, you knew darn well the Supreme Court of Canada was just going to slap it down, too, which is exactly what happened. So there are varying estimates of how much this has cost taxpayers, but one estimate out there is $2 million in legal fees. For what? For what? For a case that you knew was going to not succeed. And the reason they did it is pure political politics and pandering. They did it because Horgan wanted to look tough on this pipeline in order to prevent bleeding of votes away from the NDP to the Green Party. That's why he did it. So for this sort of political posturing and pandering, it costs $2 million in legal fees, <laughs> Which is in just, my opinion. Exactly. And this whole idea of looking tough, I don't think he looked tough at all. He looked foolish because, like you said, you don't need a law degree to figure out this case. No, you don't. I mean, to predict this, you didn't have to be the amazing Kreskin either to kind of predict this was going to happen. Everybody knew this exactly what was going to happen. This would be money down the drain. Alberta did the same thing. When Alberta did their turn off the taps bill, that's the one where they said, we're going to cut off oil and gas shipments to B.C., to punish us for opposing this pipeline, you knew that was a dead on arrival too. They, they couldn't do that either. And that was political pandering in Alberta. And that cost millions of dollars for Alberta taxpayers. So you've had this sort of interprovincial fight by both parties trying to use the courts to do this kind of political posturing, and it's cost taxpayers millions of dollars in both provinces. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. I'm sure people okay. uh, will be weighing in on that. Mike Smith, thank you so much. Anytime, Jill. So, well, we hear about report cards. We get to updates on various things in this province, one of them being the child poverty rate. And I think people are often surprised at just how many kids in B.C. continue to live in poverty or certainly under the poverty line. Uh, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Katie Hislop, who is a reporter at the TIE and has written about this. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this is the latest information, the numbers put out by First Call, BC's Child and Youth Advocacy Coalition, finding that one in five children in BC continue to live in poverty. What did you find as far as when you were researching this and writing about this as to the reasons why? So the reasons why are, are varied, um, low wages being one of them. So uh, a full-time minimum wage earner receives just now, this, these numbers were for 2017 because that's the latest data that's available from Statistics Canada. But yeah, one, one full-time minimum wage earner earned just over $20,000 in 2017, um, and, or sorry, $20,000 a year, and two full-time minimum wage earners earned just over $40,000 a year. Um, there's also low welfare rates. Um, a lone parent with one child received just about $20,000 a year, which is 66% of the poverty line uh, for a family of that size, and a couple with two children, uh, $25,000 a year, which is only 61% of the poverty line for that family that size. Then, as we know, I mean, if you live in Metro Vancouver, median childcare costs at the time were $1,300 a month, and an average two-bedroom rent in Metro Vancouver was $1,500 a month. So uh, families who are making a minimum wage or just above it or are on welfare or disability to start making enough to meet the costs. 
Right. You also write about the child tax credit and the various mechanisms that have been brought in to try and offset those costs and that. Does it look like that's making a difference? Uh, it, so 2017 was the first full year of the Canada Child Benefit, which is the federal child benefit. Um, and they did show that there was a the gap between the overall poverty rate in BC um, and the child poverty rate has actually begun to close a bit. Um, and so starting that year, so it does look like it is starting to make a, a bit of a difference. Uh, and BC's child opportunity benefit, um, which is the provincial child benefit, starts this fall in 2020. So we'll see if that makes a bit of a difference as well. But again, I mean, the number of kids who are living in poverty is still higher than the overall poverty rate in BC, which is 18.4%. And looking as well as, uh, I mean, any child living in poverty is not a good thing, but you've also looked at it as far as uh, Indigenous families as well. And uh, it seems to be that there there's some over-representation there. Yeah. Um, so if you are Indigenous, uh, if you're an Indigenous child in the province and you're not uh, living in a First Nations community, so not on, on a reserve, you have a 30% child poverty rate. Um, but it's, it's also even higher for recent immigrant children. 45% of them are living in poverty. Um, and if you are racialized as well, that's another 25%. But, I mean, the highest over-representation seems to be kids who are living with lone parents, actually. So 53% of the kids who are living in poverty, so over half, were living with single parents. And that's the first time since they started measuring child poverty in BC that that's actually been the case. Hmm. Which I would imagine is a bit of a double double blow there in that if you're in a low-paying job, even if it's not minimum wage, if you're not making a great salary and you're a single parent, then a lot of your salary is going to be eaten up with childcare. Exactly. And you, you talk a little bit of, as well about um, some hopes for the next budget as far as the $10 a day child care plan, which has been talked about a lot in this province. And uh, I know you talked to Sharon Gregson, who's a spokesperson for that. Uh, does she say that it would make a big difference or, or that that would, ha- would change these numbers significantly? Yeah. Um, so there's only about 53 child care centers in the province who are currently doing the $10 a day child care spaces. Uh, and we talk a little bit more about this in our, the article on the TIE, but uh, so she said an expansion of that. And also um, for families who are earning under $45,000 in those centers, they pay no fees. So an uh, expansion of more $10 a day childcare spaces would mean an expansion of the number of families who don't have to pay any fees at all. Right, which would then, uh, I mean, obviously that would be a huge difference in the amount of money you get to keep that you take home at oh, the yeah. end of the day. So at, at least $1,300 a month, yeah. Um, what else, did any of the numbers strike you as surprising, or what else did you find when looking into this? Um, no, sadly, nothing of this actually struck me as surprising. Uh, so the tie has been covering the Child Poverty Report card since they put it, since they started putting it out. I found articles back to 2009, but there might have been even earlier ones. So sadly, um, we've had this high child poverty rate. It, it's fluctuated, and the way that they... Have Statistics Canada has measured or released its data has changed over the years. But it's continually been high, one of, I mean, this is the 18th year in a row that BC has had a higher child poverty rate than the Canadian average. So sadly, none of this is actually surprising to me. 
And and other than the the ten dollar a day daycare or the the reduction in daycare costs, are the solutions? Did you the general feeling is it more child tax credits or uh, getting people into better paying jobs? I mean, those seem like the obvious ones. But here we are, yeah. like you said, we're so many years later still talking about this. How do we change those mm-hmm. numbers? So uh, you had mentioned Indigenous kids. So one thing we could do. So the federal legislation just passed for um, Indigenous controlled child welfare services. Um, But we don't have provincial legislation for that yet. And we we definitely don't have any resources for either the federal or uh, provincial Indigenous controlled child welfare services. So that would be one step. Um, Fully recognizing treaty rights and negotiating and settling land claims for First Nations so they can start you know, using their land to uh, to make income off of. Putting it, one thing that came up uh, that was interesting to me was putting a gender or race or ability lens on the BC Poverty Reduction Plan. So that means basically looking at how poverty impacts different groups uh, in different ways and adjusting our uh, the ways that we alleviate poverty. So, uh, you know, like the childcare benefits and things like that um, based on whether a family is, you know, led by a mother or led by racialized people or um, if the parents are disabled, things like that. And you touch on that in the piece as well, that there are different rates for if it's children with certain disabilities or, again, parents with disabilities as well. Yes. Um, so they, this child poverty report card was a bit, uh, it was an abbreviated version of previous ones, and they said that they're going to come out with more data later in the year. But they do mention, unfortunately, no stats were were given, but they mentioned that uh, kids who are disabled also have higher rates of child poverty. Hmm. I, I guess the, the one that, that strikes me too, it's the single parent families and, and you found in that, that, that it is much, you're much more likely to live in poverty. And even then, if it's a single parent family led by a woman, even more so because the median annual income is lower. It just seems like that's, I mean, how do you get somebody out of that cycle? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, and I guess, so things like subsidized childcare would help um, if they need to go back to school, um, helping with tuition and, and things like that. But I guess also just taking that look and seeing how, how does poverty affect women? How long are they living in poverty, especially when they have, um, when they have children and they're single? Right. And that's an interesting one you mentioned, too, because we, we don't often talk about that in uh, tuition and that the goal, the goal probably is not just to help somebody make ends meet. The goal is to help somebody get to a place where they do have more money in their pocket or they are making a better wage. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're earning minimum wage um, and, you know, you're you're no longer a young person who's moving, you know, moving up in the world like we think we're supposed to, then yet you probably you need help getting that uh, getting more skills or getting to a better place. All right. Well, they're interesting numbers, uh, definitely. And like you said, uh, this is uh, the, the uh, preliminary or the, the latest numbers, and we will expect to, to see more of them coming out. Uh, thank you so much for writing the piece and for joining us today. It was uh, great to chat with you. Thank you again. Thank you for having me.